It was shifting this belief that empathy is this nice to have thing that good leaders have, but you know what? Like, you could be tough but fair and without empathy, and it's okay. <laughs> um, through to, you know, we're leaving money on the table if we don't focus on empathy. Hello, and welcome to Minto Dialogue, episode number 315. Today is Sunday, the 17th of February, 2019, and this interview is with Roy Bagarfa. Roy is a leading authority on marketing. Trends and innovation, and he's a Wall Street Journal best-selling author with his annual hit book on trends, non-obvious, how to predict trends and win the future with new trends for 2019. Before founding the non-obvious company, Roet spent 15 years as a marketing strategist for Ogilvy and Leo Burnett. In this conversation with Roet, we discuss some of the new non-obvious 15 trends and how to become a better trend curator. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Rohit Bagarva, you and I have been connected over the years. Uh, certainly, I've been following what you've been up to, and we have this cross-section of teaching or talking about trends in tech. You've been writing as uh, you are wont to do an annual book, so you have an yes, obligation right. to do an annual book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sort of it sort of feels like that sometimes. That's it. Well, you've also written other books, best-selling on Wall Street Journal, uh, amongst others. You do some teaching, and you run your company called the Non-Obvious Company. Company. So, wanted to start off by asking you. Well, you, in your own words, describe who you are. And then describe what is non-obvious for us. Yeah, I I think uh, I I often describe myself as a as an idea collector. Uh, so I spend a lot of time trying to pay attention to the world and trying to see patterns and things that maybe other people miss. Uh, not because I'm smarter, but because I just am paying more attention. Um, and I have it as an unintentional part of uh, how I spend my time. Uh, and then every year, like you said, I do something that. Uh, Uh, I think you, as a fellow author, will appreciate as completely idiotic, which is I take the same book and I write a detailed update to it, and I publish 15 new trends every year, and so I replace, you know, close to 30,000 words in this book every year, um, and then republish it. And the reason why I do that is because the world is changing so fast, and so there's always new trends and there's always new interesting insights to share. And so that's the aim of this book. It's to share the new, newest trends, the newest insights, and also to teach people how to think in this way, to use what I call non-obvious thinking. All right. So how do you finally declare it is non-obvious? Because you know, let's <laughs> say that for some people, the filter, oh, I don't know, for sure, I get it. And how do you know when it's non-obvious? Uh, you want the easy way or the hard way? <laughs> <laughs> the... Um... You know, the easy way is uh, once I think something is a trend, um, I Google it. Uh, and if there's lots of people talking about it already, then it probably isn't non-obvious. Um, well, what's a lot, though? I mean, you know, 9,000 people, is that a lot? Um, you know, uh, it's a judgment call. Uh, but I think that uh, if, for example, the idea is discussed in what anyone might consider mainstream media, 
then it's probably reached some sort of a mass awareness. Um, and so that would be a sign that, okay, maybe this isn't quite non-obvious because, you know, the New York Times wrote a piece about it. So you can hardly consider that to be under the radar. Um, so that may be one way to tell. Uh, the more difficult way to tell is to actually go out and make these connections and then share these ideas with multiple groups and say, well, are you thinking about this? Uh, and I'm lucky because I do, uh, you know, I go to a lot of events um, every year. I speak at a lot of events. I run a lot of these workshops. So I'm always in front of people testing these ideas. And so I benefit from that because I can sort of gauge their response and, and see whether people are saying, oh, you know, that's something I might have thought about, but I never heard it described that way. Or oh yeah, we know about that. Like we were talking about that uh, in our in our boardroom six months ago. Well, what is interesting, I mean, let's say that you were to put in muddled masculinity in quotation marks in Google. The, the, what you do is also you, you characterize that trend and maybe that's the originality and the non-obviousness of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example. So that is one of the terms, one of the, the names for the trends. And what it is meant to describe is this uh, dual nature for how we're starting to see masculinity, the downside and the and the upside, and the question marks that are raised around it. And so this term of muddled is meant to describe the question. Because if you look at uh, discussions of masculinity right now in uh, social media or in the media, you know, you'll see this toxic masculinity come up a lot, but then you'll also see this like dominant form of masculinity. And then you'll also see like the softer side of masculinity and like, you know, in terms of like dads and men uh, being fathers with little kids and how the stock imagery has changed from like the the rough and tumble dad to like the more sensitive dad who's getting his, his toenails painted, you know? Um, and so like these are all signs of something broader, which is that we're questioning what masculinity actually is. And so the trend in that case was meant to describe the question as opposed to saying this is what it is. Mm. Certainly, you mentioned you know if it's in the New York Times, then it's mass media. But sometimes there are certain journalists who are ahead of the gig and, and they go for it. And I'm thinking specifically, and it comes up with this notion of masculinity is the intellectual dark web that was featured in the New York Times, but basically otherwise hasn't really hit the new mass media. So that's sort of an example of, you know, kind of is, kind of isn't a mass term. And funnily enough, of course, they tend to focus on this topic, or if you're listening to Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Eric Weinstein, on this notion of masculinity. Yeah, I think um, you're right. I mean, it. Uh, they look a professional, full-time investigative journalist is going to uncover something that uh, oftentimes a lot of people haven't heard about, and just because they then write the article doesn't mean it's mainstream. So Indeed. you're absolutely right there. Um, but what I also am trying to do is I'm trying to offer a take, a point of view on these things by putting pieces together. So a lot of times, what what I'll find in these trends is that. Um, when I take a story from one industry or from one publication and I merge it together with another story from somewhere else, that's where I start to elevate the thinking. And a big goal of this book is to talk about trends in a much more elevated way. So it's not here's a fashion trend and the color of the year is going to be you know, burnt <laughs> orange. You know, That's just one little slice. Um, and what I'm trying to do is paint a bigger picture. Well, it's only going to be the trend for a season, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that's um, right. so you know, you and I write and you create narratives. You chose fifteen 
what was the reason for 15? I mean, you know, so many times it's like the top 10, 20, could have been, you know, a weird number. You could have gone for like 13 and a half. You went for 15. <laughs> well, is there a reason for that? And do you feel, funnily enough, as an author, that that's a constraint, that's a good one or a bad one as you've done this now so many years in a row? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question. So 15 originally um, was the number that I'd landed on because um, 10 was too limiting and nobody was really doing 15. And so I figured if I was doing this non-obvious trends, I may as well do it with a number of trends that you don't usually see. Because you're right, it's usually 10 or 20 or 7 or 5. Um, those are the numbers. Like if you look at blog posts with like 7 ways to you know, um, hack your diet, right, or whatever it is, like it's usually 7 or 5 or 10. Um, so that was one of the reasons. Um, when it comes to the second part of your question about the constraint of it, um, I find the constraint to be very valuable because there's too many ideas otherwise. And what usually ends up happening for me on an annual basis is I'll go through and collect these information and all these stories and everything every year throughout the year. And after seven or eight months of collecting, then I'll go back and start to cash them in. Kind of like uh, the analogy I'm fond of using is I collect ideas the way frequent flyers collect miles. Mm -hmm. So it takes me time to amass them, and then eventually I use them all at once. And for me, the all at once is writing this book. And when I go through that process, I'm usually coming up with maybe 70 potential ideas for trends. That's usually what it works out to. So having 15 forces me to put the pieces together, to move things around, to elevate my thinking, to combine things that maybe seem like they might be two, but actually are talking about the same thing. So when I eventually get it down to 15, um, and in fact, what I started doing uh, is I actually started every year only doing 10 new trends and bringing five previously predicted trends back because what I found was I was writing this book every year and the trends didn't have enough time to expire. Uh, in fact, they started to become more pronounced. And after a year of this book being out, then I'd see a story on the cover of Wired magazine talking about exactly what I'd written about a year ago and it seemed like a shame to just let that go and stop talking about it because now I have the new version of the book. Uh, and so I started bringing back five from previous years. There's this issue of timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, timing in terms of when it comes out, but also timing in terms of, like, I think I have this temptation. You probably do as well. I mean, most authors do, where we get tired of our ideas before <laughs> other people do. Um, and so, you know, we move on to the next thing, even though uh, there was a lot of meat left on the bone, so to speak, of the previous idea. So if you take the analogy of your frequent flyers, would you say you had a passive loyalty to the last five that, or the, the, the incumbent five? <laughs> I see what you did there. That's very clever. Yes. Um, I think, um, you know, maybe it was partially that. Uh, maybe it was partially, to be honest, me wanting to make my life a little easier, <laughs> right? I mean, if I'm bringing back five um, every, every year. Um, but I did add a little bit of discipline around it. Um, and the discipline was... I couldn't bring back five from the immediate previous year. Um, it had to be more than a year past. So, for example, for this 2019 report, I could bring back a trend from 2017 or earlier, but not 2018. Um, and so because I forced that sort of artificial rule around this, uh, this process of bringing trends back, over the course of two years, any trend that was predicted was sure to have evolved. There was sure to be more stories. There was sure to be something else happening that would make it something that I wouldn't just cut and paste the old chapter into the new book. 
it had to be actually rewritten. It had to be actually rethought in terms of the latest stories around it. For having worked in an observatory of new tech trends for essentially seven years, there was a, there was inevitably this feeling of you know déjà vu and 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 how is this part different and and so many technologies are are not new. I mean, there are sort of old technologies that are being buffed off and, and brought back to take one artificial intelligence. And then even the mobile, and then some of the times it's it's actually not the technology, but it's the way it's being used that's the difference. Yeah, and I think, you know, this relationship between us and technology and sort of what what I know you write about, you know, like can machines help us be better as people, right? And this whole question of like what is the role of the technology and where should we embrace it, right? Uh, the the perfect example being well not maybe the perfect example but an example being artificial limbs and the yeah. idea of like you know we couldn't do something before someone had this mobility that was decreased and now because of technology they all of a sudden have access to be able to do all these things that they could never do otherwise right yeah exactly well that's the the next level right <laughs> um where you can make paralyzed people walk again or whatever it is right but um but that's kind of one level, and then the other level is just the way that technology has uh, limited us in terms of the way we can have a human connection. I mean, your fascinating story about going to dinner with the, you know, with uh, your wife and and uh, in AI, right? I mean, it's that that idea of where where's the line, right? Like where where should we draw this line? And and I wrote about it in uh, a trend that I was fascinated by personally, which I called deliberate downgrading. And it was all about this sense of sometimes we're choosing, you know, like people are going back to listening to music on vinyl, right? They're going back to this previous version. They're buying dumb phones instead of smartphones um, to force themselves to limit their uh, time and, and do the dominance of technology in their lives. My latest one, Rohit, taught to me by a 19-year-old was turning my phone to black and white. Have you done that? I have, yeah. It's um, you know, on my Samsung. It's um, called uh, like uh, like ultra power saving mode. Well, in my case, it saved me, or at least it's telling me that I'm spending two hours less per day on my screen. It's amazing. I mean, I've tried. Uh, I, I've done. Um, so I've tried. I tried that. I've removed uh, the apps from my home screen, which definitely helps. I've removed some apps from my. Uh, phone altogether, and there's only one app on my entire phone that actually allows notifications, um, and that's my messages, my so, text messages. I mean, I, anyway, it's very much the deliberate downgrade to make my phone ugly, to make my phone difficult to navigate, and yes. and the consequence is I have actually, and it tells me every year, every every week, you know, I've actually continued to spiral down the utilization of my mobile to hopefully be more face-to-face -face and have real encounters. Isn't that amazing? One of the things, Rod, that I, of course, in this space can't help but think is the meta trends. So that, albeit you have 15 separate ones in your latest book, you know, 2019, Non-Obvious Trends, you, you have overall there must be some regard on the overarching trends and how overall 2019 is different from 2018, from 2017. Is that something that you feel? And, and, and 
Is that something that's necessary, do you feel, or is it better to stay on the separate trends? So it's interesting that you would um, raise that now because it is something that I have thought about for a long time, and it's coming up next year. It's actually quite a relevant question because the first year I did my trend report was 2011. And so what that means is 2020 is actually the 10th edition, and it's been a decade. And so in non-obvious 2020, we're actually uh, working on doing exactly that. Uh, so the idea is that it'll be focused on mega trends. So you know, in your case, what you call meta trends, but mega trends was kind of the terminology because there's been, you know, sometimes they use that terminology with trends. And the idea is to go back and look at some of these patterns and actually look at what's shifted over that period of time. How have the trends shifted? How has our culture shifted? And what does that mean for the future? Mm. Uh, so that is actually what I'm working on right now. Mm. In your 2019 book, uh, something that struck me in terms of its appearance, almost with regularity, throughout the book, but I mean it doesn't wasn't every time, but was the notion of ethics, and and what a preponderant place that has in today's society, almost in every regard, if it relating to technology. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting because I think. Um... Maybe the more intellectual or the academic among us, and both of us are probably in that situ, in that category, would call it ethics. But in uh, in sort of average everyday speak, you'd call it the creep factor um, in a lot of cases. Which is, does this technology creep me out? Is it creepy that that you know uh, these e-commerce retailers can follow my behavior and know exactly what I want? Is it creepy that I was just talking about something and, and maybe Amazon Echo's device overheard it because now I'm seeing ads for that exact thing that I was just talking about in a conversation? Um, <clears throat> and that is one of the big challenges we hear when it comes to how we treat ethics, which is not the capability of technology because now the capability has outpaced our capacity to, uh, to feel comfortable with it. At the same time, the creepiness factor is evolving, and what one might have thought was creepy uh, maybe 20 years ago is less creepy today as we get accustomed to the idea that if I if I said to you the word Alexa, there's a risk that my little machine is going to the right is going to start going off. So I avoided saying hello, uh, but by you know at some level we're getting used to that, and so the creepiness element is also evolving and and therefore our ethics are evolving yeah and i think also our uh our level of comfort with it um is evolving by age right i mean if you look at what a young person who's grown up with this technology is comfortable with you know it's no big deal to just randomly ask alexa or google verbally for an answer to something while you're doing your homework i mean that's how my kids do their homework now so one of the things you talk about, and I'm not sure if you talk about it in every book, is but you do certainly heavily in 2019, is this notion of curation. It's it's a, a wonderful word if you're a museum like Sri Srinivasan or or someone who's involved. You obviously know about that, but in in your case, you, you make a, a big point about the talent of curation and this notion of selection, but. What what makes for a good curator, whether it's like trends or content? 
Uh, I think there's a couple of, I mean, what I write about is that there's some habits that I believe make for a good curator. Uh, and two of them are, are probably not surprising that they must be observant and curious. Uh, so curious enough to ask questions and observant to see what other people don't see. The one that I find a lot of people are surprised by is that I say that um, trained curators should be fickle. Um, and what I mean by fickle is that you should be willing to save an idea and then move on and come back to it later because it might become meaningful later, not now. And <clears throat> I think a lot of us might appreciate that uh, like philosophically, but we don't know how to do that, right? Like, it, Would you remember an interesting idea that you heard a speaker talk about at a conference six months ago? How would you remember that? Like, would you email it to yourself? Would you take a note somewhere? Would you find your notebook? Um, you know, like we don't know how to do that. And so one of the things that I teach people a lot when I'm going through and doing like a workshop or even a keynote is how do you take notes in a way that makes them meaningful over a long period of time? Um, and there's a method that I use, which I call noteboxing. And, and so, you know, there's there's ways you can do this that actually make this information useful. And when you can do that, you give yourself the opportunity to see the meaning uh, between all of these disparate pieces of what otherwise could be noise. One of the things I, I remember learning was this notion of note-taking and the to-do list and, and uh, managing that. It seems like a much more profound version of to-do lists, you know, or at least to-think lists. In, in, yeah. in your, um, in your, on your site, uh, talking about your company, you you're with non-obvious you talk about we only work you know i quote we only work with clients that we truly believe in and aim to be real unbiased partners and i was wondering if you could tell me what you truly believe in and how do you identify these clients because it certainly perked my interest yeah, I mean, I think uh, to some degree it's uh, a little bit – at this point it's a little bit reactive because it's just I'm, I'm going out and speaking in enough places that there are really interesting people who are interested by that who come and, and want to uh, want to learn more and want to talk uh, with me and, and with some of my team members about how to bring this sort of thinking. I do think there's probably a, a – there is a philosophy behind like who we would work with or who we wouldn't, but I don't know that I've ever really quantified it. I mean I don't think we're we're huge enough where I have uh, 12 people making decisions on who we work with. I you mean, haven't established kind of, a charter. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, I think that it's kind of still been uh, – look, I mean at the end of the day, it's my, my call um, still. And so it hasn't really become necessary for us to do that because I'm deciding whether we work with someone or not. And so um, it's centralized. <laughs> Surely. Where as long as I feel comfortable – asking the questions that I need to ask I'm okay with making the call now maybe if we grew to a point where I would have to deputize that then we would need something like that but Got I think it. we haven't really we're not really at that point I think so going back to this notion of meta trends of course is something I like to look at I, I was uh, I really enjoyed this this thing you did called the non-obvious trend experience where you or collating yes. or connecting things that have happened over the years that you've related to. So I was wondering, A, what has that done for you? And, and two, are, are you seeing, for example, are you looking, checking how people click on that? And are you checking, you're looking for what people are, how they're behaving with regard to this? 
Yeah, that's been a really fascinating one. So that was a, um, <clears throat> it was sort of a usage, uh, a use case for a really great technology platform that was developed by Microsoft. And so we partnered with them to create this, uh, this platform that was based on a technology they had called Power BI, which is meant to visualize data. And the whole idea was that we have 15 trends every year times now nine years. So if you do the math, I mean, it's well over 100 trends. And the challenge was exactly what you said. How do you see the patterns between them over years? And this tool really helped us to figure out where those patterns were. And I think so far what it's been is a really good visualization for us to be able to use to generate interesting and new ideas. Um, I think we have some data on, on kind of who's using it and how, but we still are analyzing that to figure out like what would be the right sample size so that we can really see how are people using it, how do we improve it, what could make it more useful for people, and what do they actually want. I mean, right now, you can see the patterns between the trends. You can read details on a particular trend, but that's about about it. You can't go further to watch a video of a trend. You can't, like, see interrelationships. I mean, there's a bunch of other things we could do, um, and the question is, like, is what would make it most valuable? Like my friend uh, James uh, Bidwell's book, Disrupt, in, in all of your trends, you tend to explain or, or demonstrate through an example. And it's like with James, the issue or the thought is how these examples live on and did they survive and you know how did they do even though they were interesting in their day. You know, that's also a lot of interesting data. It is, yeah, and I think um, we have that to some degree because uh, at the end of the book every year, there's a detailed appendix, and the appendix kind of looks at every past trend, and it grades them based on these conversations and based on the feedback and based on what our readers have said uh, in terms of whether the trend continued over time, what happened to it, did it shift, uh, all of those So of the 15 trends you have in 2019, as you can imagine, Rohit, one of them stood out for me. Uh, it was called Enterprise Empathy. So, in your words, how would you describe this one? I mean, I have my version of it, but how would you describe Enterprise Empathy? Yeah, Enterprise Empathy was really uh, based on this idea that uh, we have known empathy uh, as kind of this quality that great people have. And then over time, it became this leadership principle that, oh, you need to lead with empathy. And I think what's interesting and what shifted with it and what this trend was about is that there's a business model behind having more empathy, i.e. it can make you more money or it can be the point of difference between your products and services and others or the reason why you have a great workplace that people love and, uh, and stay with. Uh, and that was really interesting to me because it was shifting this belief that empathy is this nice to have thing that good leaders have. But you know what? Like you could be tough but fair and without empathy and it's okay huh. um, through to, you know, we're leaving money on the table if we don't focus on empathy. Like this is a business decision for us in terms of actually doing better as a business to the bottom line. And you, that was a shift. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a number of examples like Procter and Gamble's herbal essences uh, there was also the Gillette razors and, and the interesting thing there is that you were highlighting let's say diversity and of mm-hmm. course the role of empathy is critical within 
the idea of diversity, and then you're also then applying it to conception of product and innovation. Yes, and I think with with all of those examples, what was really interesting is if you look at it on the surface, I mean, Procter & Gamble are creating shampoo bottles that uh, you can tell the difference if you're blind between a shampoo and a conditioner based on dots that are printed on the bottle. I mean, how many customers would you actually affect with something like that, right, would be one question. And the other question is, you know, does that matter as much? Because what you're demonstrating is not just that you have a usable product for someone who's visually impaired. You're also demonstrating that you put empathy and your customer at the center of everything. And it becomes a story. And it becomes a reason why people actually purchase these things. And guess what? Um, what you maybe knew from the beginning or maybe you discover afterwards is, yes, you create something like that for people who are visually impaired, but a lot of people close their eyes in the shower. Of course. So, and they've got know, the, the, the shampoo actually, in their eyes and they can't. Yeah, and they have – exactly. And so your your audience for something like that becomes much bigger when maybe – I mean who knows? Maybe they knew that all along and you know they're smarter than everybody. But uh, a lot of times what you'll find is something like that, that when you focus on empathy and you think it's going to be for this small, tiny group and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, this is – huge for everybody yeah it's like the the twingo a car that was for renault and it was designed for the younger audience and they're so trying to you know get young again but it turns out that 80 percent of the purchases were over 50 years old is because they felt young at heart um so um the other the same time within that trend you very rightly talk about this notion of of loneliness the epidemic of loneliness and the the rise of narcissism, the the decline in empathy that is playing out in society in general. Yes, um, and I think that is uh, just demographically that is going to be a bigger driving factor in more innovation moving forward, uh, right? Because this idea of we need to be able to uh, have more empathy for people who are aging because a there's more of them and b a lot of the people who are innovators right now will be in that category in another 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and so there's a lot of attention and probably more so. I mean, you know, what's going to happen when Mark Zuckerberg turns 60, right? He's going to start thinking about this stuff. Um, and so all of these people who are innovators who've created the, like back when he was in college, he created the thing that college students needed. So, you know, he's not a good example maybe, but there are many other innovators who are going to be entering that age category and want to create things for themselves. And in that vein, I would argue it would well be before that because what happens is you don't think about yourself, but you end up being the kid of a an older person and and therefore becoming responsible for them. So it actually, in that particular case, as far as I'm concerned, because I'm a little bit older than you, <laughs> I'm already there. Um, last question, if you wrote it. You have now got so many books, and as an author, I am just selfishly interested. You must have learned how to promote your books. <laughs> what what <laughs> would be some of the key ideas you've had, or trends maybe even, in how best to promote books now that we're in 2019? Well, I think um, we are doing one of the best things right now, <laughs> which is you know finding really smart, interesting people who have podcasts and agreeing to go on their shows and in some cases begging and pleading them <laughs> to go on their shows. Um, that is a great book marketing tactic. Um, so, you know, there you go. Now you know the motivation. Partially. There you go. 
Um, but also, I think that uh, for me, what's been really interesting is over the course of writing non-obvious, I've kind of built a tribe of people who are interested in this topic who uh, read the book every year. And so I think the, the downside is, yes, I have to republish this thing every year and it's a lot of work and I only have a year to sell the book and then it kind of you got to move on. The upside is I can really build a strong reader base because every year they know they're getting a new update. And so I can create a community around that in a way that maybe is difficult with a one-time book. And you've also, to your full credit, right, got the stamp of a Wall Street Journal best-selling author. And, and that obviously gives you a whole lot of kudos and credentials. Congratulations for that. Yeah. Uh, do you uh, consider audio versions of your book? I, I didn't check if you do. I do, audio. yeah. So um, I have done – so I personally have not recorded them in the past. Um, I've just uh, uh, you know, found narrators that I really liked uh, and had them do it. Uh, so with various books, I will get uh, audio versions done. I have an audio version of Non-Obvious 2018. Uh, we haven't done one yet for 2019. Um, but, uh, you know, that may be, may be in the plans. We're still seeing how it goes. Coming to an audible near you. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm right now Correct. in the process of booking up my audio version for artificial empathy. And ultimately in the end of the day, it becomes, a, a it's almost as James uh, Bidwell was telling me, when you go from hardcover to paperback, it's another reason to blast it out. So maybe that's another thought. Rowit, tell us how people can get in touch with you if you if you like that, or at least follow you, listen to you, and of course, get your books. Yes, so it uh, should be quite easy. Just my first name, last name, dot com. So rohitbargava.com. I'm sure you'll put that into I the, certainly will. B-H-A-R-G-A-V-A. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, I would love if, uh, if people find this sort of thinking useful. Uh, every Thursday morning, I publish a newsletter. And it is the most interesting stories of the week. Uh, it's an advanced look at some of the trends that will eventually come out in the book. And I give my readers of that newsletter a early look at all the trends from any upcoming edition of the book as well. So if anyone finds any of this stuff uh, valuable, I'd love to have their uh, attention for this, this email. And I'll put that in the links as well. Rowit, thanks so much uh, for coming on been a pleasure hearing you and uh, listening to how you organize all this and uh, look forward to seeing you very shortly oh you got it you got it the session at south by southwest i also want to i do that. yeah and you uh, you do as well so indeed see you there you bet yes thanks for having listened to this recording of the minter dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show please like the handy facebook button or better yet head over to itunes to give a rating and review but first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mentioned in your lack of self-secure.
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.